Well, good morning again. It's good to see you. I'm Emily Hamilton. I'm the missions pastor here. And for the better part of the last six months, we have been walking together through the Sermon on the Mount, this great teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples and to those who would follow him. And I am, I have to admit, excited to share with you that we are at the end of the Sermon on the Mount today. So as a way to mark this occasion, I wanted to play a little game with you. Are you up for it? Uh, It's a game I'm calling Famous Last Lines that will test your movie trivia knowledge. So on the screen behind me, you're going to see the last line of a movie, and we're not going to be too formal about this. If you know what movie it's from, just shout it out. And if you name it correctly, your prize will be the inner satisfaction that you have from knowing that you are a movie trivia whiz. So let's get started. This one's just a warm-up. Oh, Annie M., there's no place like home. The Wizard of Oz. Very good. All right, the next one. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Casablanca. Very good. All right, the next one. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Back to the future. Very good. Very good. All right, this is the last one. Kevin, what did you do to my room? Home alone. Very good. Give yourself a a hand. Very good. Good job. Thanks for playing along. So, what makes these last lines so memorable or recognizable? Some of them are recognizable even if you haven't seen the movie, but most of them are memorable because they kind of are like a little shorthand summary of everything important that's come in the movie up till that point. They capture in one moment everything important that happened in the whole movie. The teaching of Jesus that we're looking at today is kind of like the great last line of a really great movie. You see, Jesus is a good preacher and he really wants us to remember what he's saying. So whether or not you're familiar with these words of Jesus already or not, what I want you to notice as we walk through them is that they capture and point us back to everything important that he has said in the entire Sermon on the Mount up till this point. So before we get to his last lines, let me give you a bird's eye view of where we've been in his sermon. Jesus has taught us about the upside-down kingdom that he is bringing, a kingdom where the poor in spirit are the richest of all, where those who mourn and hunger and are persecuted are those that are truly blessed. Jesus has also raised the bar, showing us that it's not just outward right behavior that he wants, not the bare minimum, but that he is inviting us to truly live what God most desires for those who are in his kingdom. And it's a kingdom, if you remember, that really extends to every part of our lives, from our family to our food to our finances. And Jesus has taught us to lay down the things that are hindering us from taking up that life. He says, lay down your anxiety, your judgment, even your doubts about God's goodness. And over the last few weeks, Jesus has been warning us, showing us that we have a choice We can go the narrow way that leads to life, or we can go the easy way that leads to destruction. We can go the way of leaders who seem just spectacular on the outside, or we can look for those who bear good fruit that comes from abiding in Jesus. 
And so when we get to the passage that we're at today, the tension has been mounting. And in these last lines, Jesus is going to remind us that we have a choice to make about how we respond to everything that he's been saying up till now. So there are Bibles in the P-Rex in front of you. I encourage you to grab one and follow along. You can also follow along on the screen with me. We are in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. And it goes like this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So to end his sermon, Jesus tells us this story, a parable, to show us the nature of the choice that we have to make about what we're going to do with everything that he's been teaching. And it's a story in twos. There are two people. There's wise and there's foolish. And both of these people, though, they're building a house. And the two people each choose a different foundation to build their house on. One chooses rock and the other chooses sand. But they both face a storm. And the house built on the rock stands through the storm and the house built on the sand falls. I think the similarities are really interesting. First of all, it's just a given that we are all building a house. We are all building a life with every choice that we make, and the foundation that we build our life on is whatever we think is most true or stable, whatever gives us identity, security, acceptance, And the way Jesus tells the story, it's clear. We're all building something. But the other similarity is that no matter what we build, it will face a storm. Everything we build will face a storm. Now, Jesus spent most of his life in places that were surrounded by deserts. And even though it doesn't rain a lot in the desert, when it does rain, it can be fierce and deadly even today. The sandy soil isn't very absorbent, and so these dry, sandy riverbeds swell with water that can cause flash flooding. And when that kind of flood comes, there is no avoiding it. There's only whether or not you were prepared. Bad weather is often inescapable, and we all know that, especially after a week of April blizzards here. But even though we know this, I still think that we spend a lot of time and energy trying to make sure that the lives that we build won't face a storm. 
It makes me think about all this news surrounding this major college admissions scandal. I don't know if some of you have been following that, but for those of you who haven't been following, federal authorities recently charged over 50 people, including famous actors and actresses. They charged them with this uh, uh, for lying and bribery and cheating because they've been part of this pretty elaborate scheme to do all of those things in order to get their kids into elite universities. And I don't personally know all the reasons why these parents decided to do this, but I have to think it's in part so that their kids don't have to deal with a storm. I would imagine that these parents think if their kids can just build the right house on the right school and then the right image and the right social network and the right career and the right financial future, then their kids won't have to deal with a storm. They won't have to deal with failure or disappointment or disapproval or downward mobility. Now, we may not break the law. I hope you don't break the law. But I, can't you relate to this idea that if you spent enough money or you controlled enough people or you did enough of the right thing, then you wouldn't have to face a storm? What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't even give us that option here. In this story, there is no thing so great that you can build that it won't face a storm. But there is a way that you can find protection within the storm. You can't avoid it, but you can find protection within it. And part of how you do that in this story is you build your house on the rock instead of on sand. When I think about the importance of building on a rock instead of sand, I think about San Francisco. I love San Francisco. It's beautiful, really fun city to visit. But there are also about seven major fault lines that surround the San Francisco Bay Area, making it very prone to earthquakes. And Millennium Tower is a building in San Francisco. It's 58 stories high. It's the tallest residential building in the city, mostly luxury condos. It's beautiful, but unfortunately, Millennium Tower is sinking. It opened in 2009, and just five years later, it had already sunk 16 inches, and now it's up to 18 inches, and it's continuing to sink at a rate of two inches every year. The basement of Millennium Tower and the sidewalks around it are cracking. It's starting to lean a little bit instead of stand upright. It has a major foundation problem. When it was originally built, it was set on these deep foundations that went about 90 feet below the surface. But in San Francisco, 90 feet below the surface is still just soft clay. And what they've realized they should have done is that they need to now extend those foundations to 250 feet below the surface so that it can go all the way down to bedrock. Now, I'm kind of like, why didn't they do this in the first place? Who knows? Probably it would have been a lot harder and cost a lot more money and taken a lot more time. But either way, Millennium Tower is not built on a rock foundation. And so one of the tallest buildings and one of the most earthquake-prone parts of our country is literally sinking. We look at something like Millennium Tower and we think, what poor planning? How illogical? How foolish? 
That is what Jesus is saying that we are like if we hear his words and do not do them. We're like people who've bought a luxury condo in Millennium Tower, and it is so beautiful, but it is not built on a firm foundation. And here, Jesus invites us to become anchored to the bedrock, which means believing and living like Jesus and his words are the most stable foundation in the world. Jesus says, if you build your life on me and my teaching, you will be truly at home, even when the big one hits. What Jesus wants here is obedience. Obedience to Jesus is like building your house on the rock. All other ground is sinking sand. The trouble is, while we can all agree in theory that we want a stable foundation that will protect us in the storm, it feels pretty impossible to obey all of what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls us to do what he says. And if you're like me, you start thinking, really? Because Jesus, what you teach is hard. And not only do I not want to do it, even when I kind of maybe start wanting to do it, I try really hard and I realize I can't. You don't have to spend a lot of time with the Sermon on the Mount before you start to feel like it is just an impossible ideal or a very heavy burden. Loving our enemies, faithfulness and truthfulness in all of our relationships, forsaking anxiety, none of us does these with a 100% success rate. None of us clings to Jesus and his word like bedrock. None of us in our own strength can do anything except build houses on the sand. We've built our houses on careers and the hopes that if we're just successful there, then we'll survive the storm. We've built our houses on what other people think about us. We think if I can just keep these people happy, then I'll survive the storm. We've built our houses on our stuff, hoarding our wealth and our resources, thinking if I just have enough of these, then I'll survive the storm. Now, careers and relationships and things, these aren't bad. But when we build our life on them, it will always be impossible for us to live out the way that Jesus teaches in his sermon, and our houses will not make it through the storm. So what are we going to do? Who can save us from the lives that we have built on the sand? What can possibly make our obedience possible? What can help us see that what Jesus is teaching is not just an impossible ideal or a heavy burden, but that it's actually the way of joy. Thankfully, Jesus gives us a clue. If you notice in verse 24, he says at the very beginning of this story, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine, these words of mine, Jesus says. Do you know how many times in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus refers to himself? over two dozen times. Because in the end, 
What's most important about the Sermon on the Mount is not just its content, but the one who teaches it. What matters most is not just the words that Jesus says, but that he is the one who is saying them. This makes all the difference in the world. Imagine that you've never run a marathon before, which is not hard for me to imagine about myself. (laughs) Just imagine you've never run a marathon, and you decide one day to sign up for one. But you are such a novice at running that you decide to hire a marathon coach. And this coach creates a training plan for you, a rigorous plan. It spells out how much you need to run each day, when to rest, how much to eat, what to eat, when to eat. And in order to make it through the marathon, you know you can't just read this training plan. You've got to actually do it. You've got to do what the coach says, even if it's hard. Now, wouldn't it make a difference to you if you knew whether or not your coach had actually run a marathon before? Wouldn't it make you feel like the training plan was extremely trustworthy if you knew it was one that your coach had followed? Because the training plan matters, but it's not the only thing that matters. It also matters who wrote it. And friends, I have something really good to tell you. Jesus is so much better than this hypothetical marathon coach. He is the Sermon on the Mount made flesh. Jesus doesn't just preach this sermon. He lives it. Every beatitude, every command, every encouragement, all of it, Jesus does it. And he does it both for us where we have failed And he does it for us so that we can be set free and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it too. Jesus doesn't just preach these words. He lives them for you. And this makes all the difference in the world. This week, Holy Week, is a week where we get to see this most clearly. This is the week where the lawgiver becomes the law keeper in our place. This is the week where we see the upside-down kingdom most fully on display as the man that the crowds have just hailed as king becomes poor in spirit, despised, and rejected. This is the week where we see Jesus embody a greater righteousness. He is faithful where we are not. He loves us when we are his enemies. He prays for us even though we abandon him. This week, Jesus will do battle with such great anxiety, and he will overcome it, trusting in the goodness of his Father, and that that goodness will somehow prevail, even though Jesus must enter into such evil and even God-forsakenness. This week, we see Jesus as the one who hungers and thirsts for our righteousness so much that he will go to the cross and cry out, I am thirsty where we have failed in obedience. This is the week that we watch Jesus humble himself and become obedient to the point of death. And he does this for us. He goes all the way down to the miry pit of sinking sand where we are unable to rescue ourselves in the storm. And he comes and he rescues us. That 
is what it means to say that Jesus lives the Sermon on the Mount for us. And when you know that Jesus lives this sermon for you, that is what makes it possible for you to live it yourself. Because as Paul says in Romans, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to you. As we saturate ourselves in this story of our rescue and the story of the goodness of God embodied in Jesus, then we will find ourselves more and more becoming people who embody the teaching that Jesus has been giving us, which is to say people who find their lives in Jesus. As we stand on the rock of Christ's faithfulness to us, we will discover new possibilities for what faithfulness looks like in our own lives. As we stand on Christ's mercy to us, we will build a house of mercy. As we stand on the reconciling work Christ does for us, we will labor and construct and build reconciliation in our own lives. As we build our lives on the true rock, we will find that obedience actually becomes possible. And even when the storm comes, we will stand. When Jesus finishes his sermon, Matthew says, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one with authority and not as their scribes. Or in other words, Jesus walked the talk. This week, as we journey together to the cross and the resurrection, I invite you to join that crowd in astonishment Find some time to go back through the Sermon on the Mountain as you worship with us on Maundy Thursday or Good Friday or Easter Watch Night. Look for the places where Jesus, the teacher, lives out everything we've been talking about for the last half a year. Because in order for us to live the teaching of Jesus, we must start by being astonished that he himself has lived it for us. This week, glory in his perfect obedience for you and be astonished. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are humbled and astonished as we ponder the reality that you, the lawgiver, have become the lawkeeper in our place. In some ways, we don't even quite know what to make of this story so I pray that you would help our hearts to sit in wonder and astonishment and in the reality of this story that somehow means that though we build our houses on the sand, you have come and you have rescued us and you've set our feet upon the rock. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.